In the name of the Father, <coughs> and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Today, God willing, we're going to continue the second topic in the series um, that we started last time um, about the revelation of God. And the idea is that there is nothing about God that we can know apart from His revelation. Everything that we know is because He wanted us to know it. And it's because He revealed Himself to us in one way or another. And so we were speaking about four ways that um, the Lord reveals himself to us. They're the creation, that we see evidence of him in the creation itself, and the design that we see in the creation. The second reason is the human conscience. We see it in ourselves, in the way that we ourselves think, and the things that we consider to be right and wrong, the sense of right and wrong, which is what we're going to talk about today. We see it in the scripture. In the word of God that he revealed to us, that he wrote for us. And then finally, we see it in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnation, which we are about to celebrate in the Feast of the Nativity. So God reveals himself to us in different ways, and we're trying to understand how is it that we can know God. Today, when I'm trying to understand the human conscience, or we can speak about the natural law, which is kind of just according to our nature, that we have certain tendencies to believe that there are certain things that are good and certain things that are not good. There are certain things that are right and there are certain things that are wrong. Apart from any kind of written moral code, apart from any legal just simply by virtue, we feel that certain things are, are right or, or, or wrong. Let me change the microphone. Um, so to that end, um, I'm going to be a lot of quotations uh, today from a book, a very famous book called Mere Christianity. Um, Mere Christianity, written by C.S. Lewis. Again, it's, it's a very famous book. And he speaks about, from an apologetics perspective, about what is the evidence for Christianity um, in ourselves, in the world, and so on. Okay. So the first thing he speaks about is the moral law. He speaks about the moral law. So he says this. He says, everyone has heard people quarreling. They say things like, how would you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or that's my seat. I was there first. Or leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I give you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. And maybe we can see it, especially in children, um, kind of the importance of this principle, is that children who have not been educated, children who have not lived long enough to kind of um, have absorbed any kind of moral code that comes from society, uh, that comes even from their parents, they have a sense of something is right and something is wrong. They, they believe that something is right um, and, and something is wrong. I believe, actually, years ago, I remember there was some study that was done among very, very young children. I think they were even infants. And what they did is they got these puppets, 
and they did like a little play where um, there was one puppet that was always harming the other puppet, right? So they, um, I think that like one puppet, like they pretended like this one puppet wanted something and the other puppet prevented the first puppet from, it from getting it. And they did this in front of the infants over and over and over and again. Then they, after this is done, they offered both puppets, like a choice. Which puppet does the child want to have? They were going to give them the one that they choose. And predominantly, the babies always chose the nice puppet. They chose the one who was not, um, you know, harming or offending or, you know, stealing from um, the first puppet. It says something about how these children perceived what was happening and how they perceived what was considered to be um, in their mind either good or bad. Here, these sayings reflect something. They don't just reflect a moral code that we as human beings have engineered, um, that we have decided as a society that we're going to consider certain things to be right or wrong. This is more of something innate, something built into us that we believe that certain things just are right and we want those things and we promote those things. For instance, the idea that someone who goes to war and sacrifices themselves for the sake of a, a good cause, we look at that person as a hero. We look at that person with honor, right? And I think everyone would look at that person, someone who is sacrificing themselves for you, they would look at them and give them honor. But who said so? Why is it that we all have that same feeling? You know, and this is the point that C.S. Lewis is trying to make, is that there is some innate built-in moral code into each of us that cannot just be explained without the existence of God. And while his, his argument is very long, and we're not going to be able to, 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 to go through everything, but I'm, I want to just share some bits of it that kind of lead us in that um, direction. Now what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. Again, he's, he's speaking about these points, like how would you like it if anyone did the same to you or that was my seat, I was there first. Like the idea that the person who's there first should be the one who gets the seat or leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. The idea that we shouldn't harm someone who is innocent. Why should, you uh, why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange, I gave you a bit of mine. The idea that when I give you something, it's fair for you to give me something in return. These statements, he's, he's speaking about them. He's saying he is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing does not really go against the standard or that if it does, there is some special excuse. So for instance, if you have children that are not treating each other well and you have one child hits, the the, hits another child and you go to that child and say, it's wrong for you to, to, to hit him, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't hit him. The response of the child is not, no, it's fine that I hit him. What's wrong with hitting the response is either, no, I didn't, or, well, he hit me first, or he took my toy, or something. Like, there is some reasoning that the child is trying to express justification in doing what he did, but he doesn't discount the standard. The standard is known. The standard that we shouldn't just hit people for no reason, that's not, a, the, the child doesn't say, it's okay to hit people for no reason. He doesn't say that. He's just trying to find a reason to excuse his behavior. 
He pretends there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that the things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange, or that something was, has turned up which lets him, um, lets him off keeping his promise. Right? When, when, you, when you make a promise to someone, and you break the promise, and a person comes to you and says you broke your promise, you know, the response is not promises are irrelevant. Promises don't have any value. Uh, I will never keep my promises. That's typically not what someone is going to say. They say, well, I couldn't keep the promise because some circumstance that I wasn't expecting happened to prevent me from keeping the promise. It's, it's an excuse that I'm making to justify why I'm not keeping the promise. But I still, even as I am breaking the promise, even as I am breaking the law, even as I am in trouble because of my actions that were incorrect, I still do not cancel the idea that a promise is something that's honorable that a promise is something that should be kept, but I have not kept it. And I'm just trying to give reasons as to why. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed. And they have. Both people, the person who's, who didn't keep the promise and the person who's, who, who, who you know, who was supposed to receive something from the first and didn't, they both agree that a promise is something that should be kept, right? That's what it should be. It should be kept, okay? What about some people say, well, clearly, among different civilizations, there is different morality. There's different things that some civilization might consider to be appropriate um, and another civilization not, because some people might argue that these are all social constructs. That whatever it is that you believe, it's because your society taught you to believe this thing, right? Whereas another society, um, they have different morals and they believe in something different. So he addresses this. He says, I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations and different ages have had quite different moralities. But this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him will be how very unlike they are to each other and to our own. Um, the, the, he actually um, he wrote another book called The Abolition of Man. And one of the appendices in this book, The Abolition of Man, he actually lists a lot of the moralities and kind of the social understandings of all of these different societies so that you can see the similarities of how all these societies that have existed in all different parts of the world and all different time periods all have very, very similar uh, moral codes. Think of a country where people were admired for running away from in battle or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Like, he's saying there is no country that is going to admire people for running away from battle. That, that, that's not going uh, to be something that you find a civilization that decides that this is good. Or a person who uh, betrays all the people who had been the kindest to him. There is not going to be a country where you find that that is a law. You should uh, betray, uh, deceive the people who have been kindest to you, that's never going to appear in any civilization as being something that is considered honorable or something that is considered good. 
Men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. But they have always agreed that you ought to put yourself that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Right? So some people might say you should you should not be selfish, you should put like your family members above yourself. Other people might say, well, not just your family members, but your friends. And other people might say, not just your friends, but everyone in your society. And the Bible says, not just everyone in society, but even your enemies, right? To love your enemies. So maybe the degree of, uh, of how to apply this varies, but the idea of putting someone else before yourself is considered honorable, right? It's, it's considered something good. Whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will, com he will be complaining it's not fair. Right? Fairness is something that we intrinsically understand of treating people equally. And even a person who says that there is no moral code, there is no right and wrong, they themselves expect to be treated fairly. Right? Even though they are saying that there is no right and wrong. What about making excuses? The moment anyone tells me I am not keeping it, there starts up in my mind a stirring of excuses as long as your arm. The question at the moment is not whether they are good excuses. The point is that they are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. If we do not believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? The truth is, we believe in decency so much, we feel the rule or law pressing on us so, that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it, and consequently we try to shift the responsibility. For you notice that it is only for our bad behavior that we find all these explanations. We make excuses for our bad behavior, we don't make excuses for our good behavior. We want to take credit for our good behavior. We want our good behavior to be known. We want to be praised for our good behavior. But when it comes to our bad behavior, we, we make excuses. We want to hide it and so on because we believe inherently that there is something that is good and something that is not good. It is only our bad temper that we put down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves. Like we take credit for when we are good but we explain away and make excuses for our bad behavior. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do in fact behave in that way, that they do not in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. So he goes on to say, we know that there are certain things that are good, but those things that are good, we break all the time. Like you could imagine a society that said, okay, how is it that we normally act and we will define what is good according to how we normally act. So if we are normally selfish, because all of us can be very selfish, then let's just define that selfishness is a good behavior because it's easier for us. It makes us feel better about ourselves. That the way that we act is good, right? But here he's saying, no, we don't do that. We, even the, even the, the laws that we are, that we are or, or our, the moral code, um, if we were to say that we were to come up with one on our own, 
right? Would we really come up with one according to how we feel about it right now? Like, why would I make something, why would I define something to be good when I break it all the time and I feel bad about breaking it? Would that be really the code that I select for myself, that I choose for myself? So he's saying these are two facts, okay? The first is that there is some moral law, okay? He calls it the law of nature, okay? And the second is that we find ourselves breaking it, right? And, 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 and we, we break this code that we, we sense and we feel as, as a sense of right and wrong. So then he mentions what he calls the herd instinct. Herd instinct is... He, well, he will define it here. So he says, some people wrote to me saying, isn't what you call the moral law simply our herd instinct? And hasn't it been developed just like all our other instincts? So he's saying, some people say, well, morality, it's just uh, an instinct. It's something that developed or evolved over time. Or it's as a result of social pressure, right? That you're expected to behave a certain way in order for the benefit of the society. And that is actually the real reason behind the moral code. Some people are saying that. Okay, So this is his response. He says, Now I do not deny that we may have a herd instinct, but that is not what I mean by the moral law. We all know what it feels like to be promoted, uh, prompted by instinct, by motherly love or sexual instinct or the instinct for food. It means that you feel a strong want or desire to act in a certain way. And of course, we sometimes do feel just that sort of desire to help another person. And no doubt, that desire is due to the herd instinct. But feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help whether you want to or not. Right? Maybe I have a desire to help someone that comes naturally in myself. Right? Maybe this is a part of my instinct. But there are sometimes, many times, where we really don't want to help, but we feel that we should do it. Right? So maybe my instinct is telling me, don't do it. You know, the people that, that define morality from a very atheistic perspective. And they say that all morality is for the benefit of the society. Right? That the idea of morality came up as a way to preserve the society, as a way to uh, advance a society. And that's what it is. It's not based on God. It's not based on anything else. But you can come up with a lot of scenarios. You know, like let's say... You have a person who is very, very sick. Maybe they have terminal illness and they're very old. They don't contribute anything to society. They don't, they're not very smart. They're not working. They, they're, 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 you know, they, they, have, they have very little that they can do okay, for society. So from the perspective of benefiting society, this person really has very little value. Okay? But if you were to see this person, maybe this old person crossing the street, and maybe half blind, not even being able to see. And they were about to get hit by a car. And you had the opportunity to try to rescue them. Wouldn't you still feel that the right thing to do was to rescue them? Wouldn't you still feel like there is something that is right that you should do is to protect another person? Regardless of whether this person actually is a benefit to society or not benefit to society, there is something about saving others, helping others that is innate, instinctual inside of us not just based on like kind of a, a, a measurement of, of how good or how much society will benefit from my action, but there is something beyond that. There is something beyond just self-preservation of, of, the, of the group, right? Which you might consider that some people say that that's what morality is. It's the self-preservation of the group, okay? But that's not what this is. This is something beyond 
beyond that. Uh, feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help, whether you want to or not. Supposing you hear a cry from a man in danger, you will probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help due to your herd instinct. The other, a desire to keep out of danger due to the instinct for self-preservation. So you have two instincts, right? And they maybe are telling you two different things. Um, but you will find inside you, in addition to these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Now this thing that judges between two distinct instincts that decides which should be encouraged cannot itself be either of them. Right? So if you have these two instincts, so how do you judge which one you should follow if you have these two competing instincts? Well, there's a third thing that is telling you what you should do. Right? And this idea of the should do, this is what he is calling the moral law or the law of nature, or we talk about the human conscience. This is the idea that the source of this thing, this third thing, is coming from God. So then he speaks about what if this is learned from the parents. He says, other people wrote to me, saying, isn't what you call the moral law just a social convention, something that is put into us by education? I think there is a misunderstanding here. The people who ask that question are usually taking it for granted that if we have learned a thing from parents and teachers, then that thing must be merely a human convention. But of course, that is not so. We all learned the multiplication table at school. A child who grew up alone on a, des on a desert island would not know it. But surely it does not follow that the multiplication table is simply a human convention, something human beings have made up for themselves and might have made different if they liked. So just because something is taught to us doesn't mean that it was created by us. We are teaching something that is true. Whether that thing that is true is a man-made convention or whether that thing that is true is something that we find it in nature, that it is something that exists in the world, we teach it to one another, right? So the idea that the moral code is simply something that parents have fabricated, right? And they teach it to their kids as a, just how to be successful in society. He's saying this is, this is not true. The reality of the law. What we usually call the laws of nature, the way weather works on a tree, for example, may not really be laws in the strict sense, but only in the manner of speaking. When you say that falling stones always obey the law of gravitation, is not this much the same as saying that the law only means what stones always do? You do not really think that when a stone is let go, it suddenly remembers that it is under orders to fall to the ground. You only mean that in fact it does fall. In other words, you cannot be sure that there is anything over and above the facts themselves, any law about what ought to happen as distinct from what does happen. So he's saying, when you speak about the natural laws, like the laws of, uh, of like gravitation, laws of physics, and so on, how is it that we define them to be laws? It's based on observation, right? So you observe something, and you say, oh, this is a law. You, 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 you hold something up, and you let it go, and it falls to the ground. You say, oh, there's a law of gravitation. What is the law of gravitation? It is an expression of what actually happens. So what actually you see and observe, this is the law, okay? The laws of nature 
as applying to stones or trees, may only mean what nature in fact does. But if you turn to the law of human nature, the law of decent behavior, it is a different matter. The law certainly does not mean what human beings in fact do. For as I said before, many of them do not obey this law at all, and none of them obey it completely. The law of gravity tells you what stones do if you drop them, but the law of human nature tells you what human beings uh, ought to do and do not do. So when you speak about the law of human nature, he's saying it is not based on observation. It is not saying, oh, well, we're going to observe what human beings do, and then that becomes the law of human nature. No, the law of human nature has to do with what should be, not what is. And that's the biggest distinction. Where all of these other laws in nature, we're thinking just about what we observe. But what the law of human nature is, what the human conscience is, is not what we observe, it's what should be done, right? Even contrary to what human beings actually do. So then he goes on to this point, which is the last point we're going to talk about, which is what lies behind the law, okay? How do we go from this observation that there is some sense in all of us that there is something that should be done? How do we make that connection then to the idea of the existence of God? Now, his argument is much longer than what we're going to speak about today, but I'm just going to try to speak briefly about it. He says, let us sum up what we have reached so far. In the case of stones and trees and things of that sort, what we call the laws of nature may not be anything except a way of speaking. When you say that nature is governed by certain laws, this may only mean that nature does in fact behave in a certain way. This so-called, the so-called laws may, be, may not be anything real, anything above and beyond the actual facts which we observe. But in the case of man, we saw that this will not do. The law of human nature, or of right and wrong, must be something above and beyond the actual facts of human behavior. In this case, besides the actual facts, you have something else, a real law which does not invent and which we know we ought to obey, which we did not invent but and which we know we ought to obey. This law, law that exists that we did not invent and yet we feel compelled to follow it. Roughly two views have been held. First, there is what's called the materialist view. People who take that view think that matter and space just happen to exist and that the matter behaving in certain fixed ways has just happened by a sort of fluke to produce creatures like ourselves who are able to think. The other view is the religious view. So that first one is like the atheist view, where, where everything kind of happened on its own, where everything is random, where there is no design or purpose to the universe at all. Okay? The other view is the religious view. According to it, what is behind the universe is more like a mind than it is like anything else we know. That is to say, it is conscious and has purpose, and prefers one thing to another. And on this view, it made the universe, partly for purposes we do not know, but partly, at any rate, in order to produce creatures like itself. I mean like itself to the extent of having minds. And note this too, you cannot find out which view is the right one by science in the ordinary sense. Science works by experiments. It watches how things behave. So, so the idea of the second view, the religious view, is to believe that the universe was created by someone that has a mind and that that mind that that being has is a characteristic of the creation, the creatures that that mind made, right? So, so if, that, if that being created creatures and the creatures 
I'll have an imprint of on them that is similar to the creator. Okay, that is similar to the creator. And this is what we, we mean when we say we are made in the image of God. Made in the image of God means we have the characteristics of God. Okay, and he's saying which view is right cannot be determined through science because science is limited to the physical world, cannot understand the things beyond the physical world, okay, and requires experimentation, which cannot be done on something like this. But why anything comes to be there at all, and whether there is anything behind the things science observes, something of a different kind, this is not a scientific question, right? Again, science can only determine the way that the things that we observe and that we see in the world behave. But to understand why things exist or who created the physical world, this is a question that is beyond science. If there is something behind, then either it will have to remain altogether unknown to men or else make itself known in some different way. And this gets to the idea of revelation. There is no way for us to know what created the universe based on experimentation. There is no way for us to know anything about what made us to be here that is beyond this physical world based on any kind of measurements, right? Or any kind of reasoning that we can make beyond some kind of revelation that that existence of something outside of the universe communicates to us and says this is what it is, okay? So the only way for us to know the existence of this being, if there is one, is to say that it was he revealed, or it, or however you want to refer to it, revealed itself to us. Now, the position would be quite hopeless, but for this. There is one thing and only one in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is man. We do not merely observe men. We are, we are men. So he's saying... Now we, we, he's kind of taking the argument from looking at like the whole universe and speaking about the existence of God, and he's now bringing it down to the idea of a human being. Okay, There is one thing and only one in the whole universe that we know more about than we could learn from external observation, and that's ourselves. Right? I, can, I can do all kinds of external observations on the entire world, but we only see things from a certain perspective from the outside. But we know ourselves. We have a deeper understanding of ourselves than we can of anything else because it is not through external observation that we know ourselves, but it is internal observation. In this case, we have, so to speak, inside information. We are in the know. And because of that, we know that men find themselves under a moral law. Right? If I were not a human being and I observed the actions of a human being, I would not know the existence of this moral law. I would not know that this person experiences something that compels them, that makes them feel that they should behave in a certain way. All I would know is they behave a certain way. Sometimes they behave this way, sometimes they behave that way, and I could categorize the behavior, or maybe I could predict the behavior in some cases, but I have no sense of they are experiencing uh, like uh, like a force that is telling them what they should do. There is nothing through external observation that would tell me that. The only way that here C.S. Lewis can even write this is because he is a human being and he knows himself and he knows that all human beings experience this. 
right? So the only way that we can even speak about there being a moral law and that this moral law is like a guiding principle that is telling us what is right and wrong is simply because we experience it, not, f not because we can measure it from the outside, not through any kind of external observation. And because of that, we know that men find themselves under a moral law which they did not make and cannot quite forget, even when they try. Like people who want to forget their sins, people who want to forget the wrong actions they took, they find it very hard to do so, even though it's in their benefit, it's in their advantage, just forget those things, right? The moral law is gnawing at you. It's telling you what you did is wrong, and I want to forget that. I don't want to, I don't want to continue to live replaying in my mind the wrong actions that I took. And this haunts people for their entire life because they have broken the moral law in such a way that makes them feel guilty. Notice the following point. Anyone studying man from the outside, as we study electricity or cabbages, not knowing our language and consequently not able to get any inside knowledge from us, but merely observing what we did, would never get the slightest evidence that we have this moral law. Exactly like I said. Right? There's no way to know from the outside. How could he? For his observations would only show what we did. And the moral law is about what we ought to do. In the same way, if there were anything above or beyond the observed facts in the case of stones or the weather, we, by studying them from the outside, could never hope to discover it. So friends, how would we know if rocks have a moral law? How would we know if vegetables have a moral law? How would we know if animals have a moral law? Maybe they have, but we have no idea, right? We, there's no way for us to know because we are not them, right? Th this, is, this has to do with uh, uh, the feeling of what should be done, not just by observing an action. There is only one case in which we can know whether there is anything more, namely our own case. And in that one case, we find there is. Or put it the other way around, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe. No more than the architect of a house could actually be a wall or staircase or fireplace in that house. He's saying, if there is something beyond this world, it cannot just simply manifest itself as something in the world. But instead, it imprints on us evidence of its existence in a different way. He's saying this is the way that God imprinted in us evidence of his existence. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave a certain way, and that is just what we find inside ourselves uh, since this ought to arouse our suspicion. So this is just a short part of the, of the argument. Um, the book is very long, and it speaks about other things. Maybe um, we can do a whole series about that book at some point in the future. There are verses that also suggest the same. In Romans chapter 2, it says, For when Gentiles, so Gentiles are, are the people, the, the non-Jewish people, the people who did not have the revelations of God in a manifest way. They did not have prophets. They did not have scriptures. Okay, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Meaning the people who grew up without the law 
still have inside of themselves a conscience which either excuses, meaning it, it validates their actions as being good, or accuses. It, 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 it says, no, what you are doing is wrong, right? So, so this law, is the law unto themselves is what? It's the moral code, it's the law of God that's imprinted in each one. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. The idea of putting eternity in their hearts is, is putting inside of us a sense of something that is bigger than us. There is something beyond us, beyond simply this world. Finally, in Acts 17, it says, So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us right that that we are finding god and we are seeing evidence of god inside ourselves so this was just a very brief overview of this argument as one of the the, the proofs the evidence that shows the existence of god is the existence of this moral law which is in each one of us even those who have never heard about god they are not christians in any way they have never read the scriptures and yet all people share some common moral code of course, there are variations, but the, the, the foundation, the basis of this moral code for all people is the same. And this tells us that there is some evidence for the existence of a, a creator who created all of us in this way, telling us what we should, how we should behave. And here are some of the biblical references that support the same um, idea. Any questions or comments before we conclude? Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and for every way, O God, that you manifest yourself to us and reveal your power and your love to us. You reveal yourself to us through the creation, through our own minds. You reveal yourself to us through your word and through your incarnation. We ask, O God, that during this month we meditate always on your coming and your being near to us at all times, revealing, O Lord, the mystery of your salvation to us and being let it be for us a source of joy that we remember always how it is that you have opened the doors of paradise for us allowing us to approach you and to live with you O lord for eternity through the prayers of saint mary archangel michael saint paul saint mark and all your saints hear us as we pray thankfully our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from the evil one in christ jesus our lord for thine is the kingdom power and the glory forever and ever amen the love of god the father the grace of the only begotten son our lord god and savior jesus christ and the communion the gift of the holy spirit be with you all go in peace the peace of the lord be with you all amen